You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, everyday conversations between artist and audience member that highlights, demystifies and celebrates the classical music art form. You can gain exclusive early access to each podcast episode, plus a whole host of other benefits and trinkets by signing up to Thoroughly Good on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com forward slash thoroughly good. Hello. This is a breakneck podcast, this episode here, number 62, with composer Roxana Panufnik, who I sat down with on a breezy day outside in the sunshine at Queen Elizabeth Hall in London in late summer. We talked about some of her music on her most recent release, Love Abide, her years growing up as the daughter of another composer, how the late Oliver Nusson started the compositional ball rolling for her at around about three years old, and the regret she feels not having followed up on her father's feedback. Not that that stopped her from turning out some captivating music, some of which you'll hear in this episode. Oh, and we talked about holidays. We started with holidays and how she maximises them in order to take a break from her work. I spent all my time completely chilled, either on a sun lounger or snorkelling or jumping off rocks into the sea with my kids. How very active. My assumption about people who create things, i.e. composers, is that they've always got to have a notebook near them and they're always writing. It doesn't sound like you were Um, writing on your holiday. No, certainly not. I really, really need, every year, I really need to take August off. And I really need to completely distance myself from all my work and um, just have a really relaxed time with my children and um, see lots of silly films and just completely switch off that part of my brain. It really needs to regenerate because I work very intensively while I'm working and I have lots of deadlines. Um, So it's really good just to kind of move away from it all. Uh, I create things and I often take too much on uh, in a bid to feel needed by the world um, but it, it's not about me what really. do you create? Uh, I make videos and podcasts and write blog Fantastic. posts and stuff yeah. and I always say yes to people uh, <laughs> and then I do reach a critical point where I think I can't I can't deal with it anymore I can't deal with it anymore mm. uh, I'm wondering what you notice when about you or about the world around you when you realise that you need to regenerate I can't think. My head becomes cotton wool and um, I don't sleep well because I'm worrying about everything else that I need to do and trying, I mean it's every working parent is thinking, you know, what do they have to remember for work, what do they have to remember for the kids to take to school the next day, you know, it's, it's this constantly, I have a notepad by my bed. And it's very rare that musical ideas actually get on that notepad. It's mostly kind of domestic, practical stuff. And, um, and it just gets to the point where I actually, I don't want to think. I really don't want to. I'd much rather just sort of sit in front of the TV or something and I actually can't face going into my office. But it very rarely gets like that. Um, and it's usually... You know, at the end of July, when I know I'm about to go on holiday. Um, It sounds as though you've come up with a strategy quite early on. You have to. You have to, because... um, And it's really interesting, because I think lots of people say to me, how on earth do you combine, you know, a full-time composing schedule with three teenage children? And um, the answer is, is that I don't work at weekends, I take weekends off. 
and um, I'm absolutely rigid about that unless of course there's a concert or a rehearsal I have to go to and I have no choice but um, I just completely switch off at the week and as a result um, Mondays are my most productive work days because I'm completely fresh and ready to go so that kind of lifestyle really suits me I didn't expect a composer to tell me that they essentially have a Monday to Friday job <laughs> you know the, the perception uh, yeah. of, of a composer's work is that you're it's never done there's always something that needs to be done yes there is and um, and there is you're absolutely right there is I'm not always that something you're less that of a composer no no of no 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 I know no but I I just no I just realized very early on that I have to separate these two different aspects to my life um, and, and devote um, time to each of them and not try to constantly be juggling them both all the time. It just doesn't work. Do you have a Spotify account? Yes, I do. Do you ever look at your own artist profile on Spotify? No. Oh, God, what are you <laughs> going to tell me? No, no, What's I just wondered. There? I thought about this on the way... Uh, on the way here, I wonder whether artists look at their own Spotify profile. I don't, profile. but every month I get an email from them saying that I've had so many thousands of fans and that always cheers me up that <laughs> month, that I've had 3,000 fans that month or something. Um, I, I, I flag it because I thought this would be a good starting point. Oh, okay. um, do you know what's at number one? shall be well that is so bizarre I'm so surprised about that what surprises you about that please because because <laughs> <laughs> it's not <laughs> it's not Roxana's most instantly accessible piece Have I know a lot seen? of people like it I'm I would have thought I would have thought that it would be Zen love song which is much more sort of um, chilled and romantic and soothing um, but All Shall Be Well has those elements but it's also there are quite some sort of astringent moments in it so I'm quite surprised about that <laughs> um, It sounds as though you didn't know that so that's, no. good. So that's good that's great that you haven't prepared okay. um, <laughs> Do you know what's at uh, do you know what's at number two? 
No. We're not going to carry on this <laughs> throughout, the, throughout the, the podcast. Tell me. Uh, it's Love Endureth, which I think is from oh. the album that came out this year. Yes. Praise the Lord for his vaguely familiar as in a sort of a style of singing that is vaguely familiar almost like plain song or plain chant um, and then it's slightly subverted towards the end of the phrase I don't so mean in terms love, of melody Love Endureth is um, it uses um, Spanish Sephardic chant so um, it's it's very sort of it's Jewish and Iberian in it's kind of in it's it's melodic way um, and it was commissioned um, for Westminster Cathedral Choir and I think I think it was the first time that they sang in Hebrew in the in a cathedral service I think but I might be wrong um, so that was really interesting and I worked very closely with their um, the guy in charge of their music who not the director of the choir but the presenter um, you know, to see whether that would be possible. And I was I was delighted that he said yes. They're very open minded there. Was it composed for an event specifically or No, there was a, a big um, American wonderful American um, organization called Solidea Gloria and they commission um, sacred choral music, um, basically Christian sacred choral music. And they've um, had a whole project of commissioning lots of composers, about 40 composers around the world, to do psalm settings, um, which they've been recording ever since. And so I was their UK person. Uh, where did it start? I mean, how, does, how do you go about writing something like that? Are you, are you finding source material and then, forgive the non-technical term, tweaking it? Um, yes. Is that essentially? Yes. So I, um, I can't remember why I choose that Spanish Sephardic chant. Um, I know why, because I was thinking about doing this album, Love Abide, which was um, music about love, but from lots of different faiths. And um, so I was looking for a, a psalm about love, um, and then I just wondered what kind of chant there was around that was used for it. And I have a wonderful um, Jewish music mentor called Dr. Alex Knapp, who used to be head of Jewish music at SOAS. And he finds me things. He finds me um, 
lots of different types of Jewish chant can be Sephardic, can be Ashkenazi, can be Oriental and he knows exactly what he likes. He knows that I like something that sounds modally exotic and that maybe has some ornamentation or something. Maybe it's that that I heard. I think it probably was and because it's a chant um, it sits very comfortably in the voice. Um, there was something else on the album. We're not going to go through the entire album. Like <laughs> but uh, the other thing that I found really striking that I wanted to ask you about was Love is the Master. Oh, yeah. Which I heard for the first time and thought, that sounds a bit saucy. <laughs> <laughs> gentle rock rhythm right okay so that's Sufi rhythm right, it's a okay. setting I, of a, I've been really no <laughs> no no because the Sufis have fantastic um, rhythm in their devotional music because you know the whirling dervishes yes. and so um, their music and their devotional music is all about rhythm and and dance so, um, so not at all. That that's completely natural um, connection to so, make. So that that material would have originated from what time? Um, you ooh, must tell me if I'm asking you things that oh, you're not able to answer. Oh, hundreds of years ago. Okay, so mm. so the reason I found it arresting was because it made me think of a rock beat. Yeah. So, and I find that quite. Yeah. I, there was a there was a tension there when I heard it. That's, yeah. That's what I was yeah. Heard. Yeah. No, rock beats evolved out of all these rhythms from, you know, Africa, Middle East, everywhere. You know, it's, it's they came first. <laughs> um, tell me about, uh, I mean, I'm bound to ask you about your family, but tell me yeah. about uh, the first sort of connection with composing, because you started composing young. Yeah. You improvised. Yes. And, yes. Yeah. yeah. When I was three. When you were three. Yes. Okay. Yes. I. Um, and the problem was this: was that my ear was far more advanced than any possible kind of ability I might have. And um, when I was three, I saw Ida Heindel playing the violin on TV, and I turned around to my mum and I said, "Mummy, I want a violinist with a I'm sorry, a violin with a stick. I want a violinist. I want a violin with a stick to make it sing." And uh, and she thought, "Oh, okay." So um, she got me this tiny eight-size violin and well, enrolled me in lessons. 
but I really didn't want to learn. I didn't want to be playing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. I wanted to be playing concertos like Ida Heindel. I was really ambitious and so I used to um, find an orchestra playing on the radio and then I would make up my own concertos to them which I'm sure sounded absolutely hideous but probably looked wonderful but um, very stubbornly um, pretended to go to sleep on the way to my violin lesson so I wouldn't have to do Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and, and I was just so deeply asleep my mother couldn't wake me for my lessons and so yes that's how it all started when did your mother realize what your game was um it took a few years because then we sort of yeah we stopped we stopped the violin because it was clear that i was not going to progress on that she was always asleep yes because i was always asleep in my lessons and then um i decided i wanted to play the piano and again i wasn't interested in learning to read anybody else's music i just wanted to make up my own and I used to drive my poor piano teacher mad with, um, you know, she would say, now try this and let's do this. And I would go, can I just play you this? And, um, and that sort of could only go on for a limited time as well. <laughs> and eventually when I was nine, um, I took up the flute and I did actually start to fall in love with all the late French romantic stuff like Ravel and Fauré and Poulenc and, and so um, I did start to learn to read music then. But um, it wasn't until I was 12 that actually um, Oliver Nusson, who was a friend of my mum and dad's, came to our house and I was playing and he said, you should write that down. And that's the start, actually, of when I started to really think about composing seriously. So my assumption was that it was your dad's influence. But no, no, it was no, Ollie in the first instance. I and mean, my dad was always very encouraging. Um, but uh, it was actually Ollie who told me to start writing it down. What do you remember of Ollie then? Because uh, you're not the first person that I've spoken to over the past Yeah, yeah. Not a lot, because I was only 12, and we are talking about nearly 40 years ago now, but he just, I remember this big, friendly, lovely man. And what what influence did he continue to have? Was he he didn't, <laughs> yeah. No, I, that, that was really my last um, contact with him until a very disastrous... Um, audition for the Guildhall when I was 18 and he and a, a panel of composers were um, uh, struggling to get me to improvise something on the piano as part of my audition. The whole thing was a complete disaster. Um, but uh, I mean, he was very friendly, but um, it just wasn't <laughs> to be. Say no. <laughs> yes, he did yeah, say yeah, no. He had to say no, um, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so that was it, really. And um, but then. I do, I really regret actually that I didn't do more composing with my father and what happened, which is what happens with all parents and all teenage children, is um, I would play him something that I'd compose and he would go, oh, very good darling, I, I really like it, it's wonderful. And then he would um, make some kind of constructive comment that might mean I might have to change something. And my ears just completely switched off. And I so regret that. I so regret it because then a few years later he died. And, um, and I, I deeply regret that. Were you 
was it that you just weren't open to any kind of feedback? You just wanted to disagree? No, well, not from my parents. I mean, who is when they're in their late teens? And <laughs> quite frankly, and it's so funny because I, you know, I see this with my own children. So, um, and you know, it's it's karma now. It's come back. But um, <laughs> but they uh, no, they're great. They're much less stubborn than I was. So, um, yeah, so I, I do regret that. But um, it's interesting because his influence genetically is very much there in my work. And I dream about him a lot. So I, I do feel that he's still involved. When you say genetically, what, what do you see? What, what, what might we hear? Well, you would hear, in the first instance, you would hear um, our mutual love of simultaneous major-minor harmonies. Nice, nice. Whereas he was quite restrained about it. I'm, like, all out right. doing it all the time. And uh, why is that? What is it that you love about that? Because I think I, I do know. hear... I don't know. I don't know. It just, it just is how I feel when it, I'm Would right. it be fair to describe that as subversion? Not in a, in a technical sense, but, either, but subverting expectations. Um, no, I don't think so. It just sounds right at the time of doing right. it, really. I find it, it sounds satisfying. right to me. Yeah. I find it satisfying because it, yeah. it, it's almost like somebody saying to me, you know what, life is really difficult. Yes. <laughs> you might as well get used to it. <laughs> that, that's, you know, it's not... St- well, also, it's like sweet and sour pork or you know (laughs) (laughs) or or salted caramel it's a a delicious musical flavour yes which is both wonderful and also evil at the same time yeah quite exactly Um, uh, the witch has completely thrown me I'm so sorry (laughs) I started to make you think about food Um, the thing I definitely wanted to ask you about was that I feel as though I've known of you and of your work for a long, long time. Oh. So I, so and what I conclude from that is that your profile has, as a composer, as a woman composer, has been very strong for all of your career. I don't know whether I'm making that up or whether that's just an assumption. I'm wondering, as a result of that, to what extent the, the sort of recent movement of trying to bring more women composers into the concert hall, how, how you reacted to that, because because I just think, well, Montana has always been doing this. Do, do you see what I mean? Did you, yeah. How did you respond to that? Do you know, I'm a terrible fence sitter. Right, right. I think it's great. I think um, it's fantastic that people are aware that there are composers who are women and they should be programmed and they needed more visibility because the problem was... Like, for instance, if somebody told you to picture a, I don't know, a bus driver, you're going to think about a bloke, can't you? And so somebody says, oh, can you think of somebody to come and drive our bus? You'll think of a bloke. And, and, and I think exactly the same parallel would, would happen with composers or conductors even. You know, who should we get to conduct this concert or who should we get to write this piece? And immediately this archetypal image of a bloke comes to mind so I think um, this has been fantastic in improving visibility of women composers and putting them on a par what I am not keen on is um, all women composer programs I think that is it's just too much I mean who wants to go and hear 
an all-woman composer program. You want to hear a program of composers where um, some of them are women and some of them are are men. It doesn't really matter, but you know that it's been programmed because that music all fits nicely together. And um, so I think the whole, I think the sort of PRS 50-50 concept is spot on, spot on. And um, I also... um, would like to feel, um, I don't know any other woman composer who doesn't feel the same way, that um, I am programmed not because I'm a woman, but because my music is right for that program, because somebody likes it or thinks the audience might like it. That's what I want to be programmed for. Uh, and this is and this is why I suppose I'm sort of interested, because I think, well, you were obviously being programmed sort of for as long as I've known, so... so <laughs> You, you have sort of secured that and, and I'm, uh, I'm wondering given what you've told me how you think that you punched through um, I think well it's really interesting because I always felt in my 20s so this was in the 90s mid 1990s um, I always felt it was great being a woman composer because you stood out from the crowd and um, and I found it nothing but sort of beneficial, really. Um, you know, it was almost a kind of USP. <laughs> <laughs> but I've um, and I appreciate that it's not the same for everybody else. But um, I just I think my my big break was a very high profile big break, Westminster Mass, and it just happened that it, it caught the imagination of. Um, press and so there was a lot about it and suddenly there was a lot also about women composers there were several articles in in you know a few broadsheets um, you know quite substantial articles about women composers who are around and then other people um, decided to focus on the fact that I was the daughter of a composer and I was um, continuing the family tradition Um, and so yeah. Was that ever problematic, that connection? Did it ever sort of bug you? Um, what, what, with my dad? Yes. Or yes. It did um, at music college. Um, there were just a few kind of snide remarks that sort of implied I only got into the academy because of whose daughter I was. And, um, how did you deal with that? I mean, I don't uh, mean, yeah, how did you confront them? But as in the I laughed. I laughed it off, but I actually, um, in the end, um, I left the academy, and I actually didn't do very well when I graduated from the academy. Um, uh, I got a, a sort of two-two for my composition, and my report said that um, I had a great gift for melody, but my music was naive. And I thought, oh, okay, I'm not going to make it as a composer. That was the Yeah. Yeah. Ow. So um, I was it was the word naive used in in a sort of a an academic way, in a descriptive way, or I, was it a personal I, sort of? Slide? I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, now I would take that as a compliment, because <laughs> right. um, it means that I'm not influenced by anybody else. But then, I just felt, um, and also it was very clear at the academy. Um, that I wasn't writing the kind of music that my professors 
felt I should they felt I should be more experimental and I know that they were right looking back on it but again I wasn't going to be told no I get and the impression <laughs> I get the impression yeah. that you're quite so, you know, um, single minded yeah. so it did actually so it made me decide that actually maybe I'm not going to succeed as a composer so I went and worked in um, TV production for a while but I got sort of sucked back into it what did you do in TV? I was a researcher um, for Young Musician of the Year, which oh, is Lord. brilliant. Lord. I absolutely loved it, and I, I learned so much about music and the world of professional classical music, and um, it was the most fantastic training for going back into composing. Suddenly, I had all these contacts. I knew who was who and how things worked in the music world, because as part of my job, I was interviewing jury members I was interviewing contestants um, I was very much involved in all sides of it so that was really good and I also worked as a researcher in the proms and in documentaries and I worked on a brilliant children's light entertainment program which was? what's that noise? <laughs> I don't know if you remember it <laughs> yes, but I oh it was brilliant basically the same. Yeah, yeah yeah so it was brilliant and um so I, I got to work with musicians from all sorts of genres for that show and, uh, and it, it was brilliant. So it was a very good training for what I do now. Does so. that mean that you ended up working with Humphrey Burton? Or yes. You, yes. Oh my God, yes. he's just like a hero. Yeah, 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 yeah. And a yeah. lovely man. Yeah. Um, what are you working on now? You come with sheets, you, you come with homework. Yes, I come with homework because I thought you might want... I wasn't quite sure, but I thought you might want to ask me, hint, 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 <laughs> about <laughs> about my premiere at the Royal Festival Hall on the 17th of October with the Bach Choir. Tell me about your premiere at the Royal Festival Hall on the 17th <laughs> of October with the Bach Choir. <laughs> I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> <clears throat> so... It's four choral seasons. So I've done four world seasons, which was for Tasman Little and String Orchestra, and now I've got four choral seasons. And it's the Bach Choir and the Philharmonia, and and they go on this amazing journey through the year. Um, And I'm so excited about it because I've got them doing all sorts of things, like in winter they're whistling, melodiously they're whistling. And um, and it's just it's it's very it's very theatrical, very dramatic, and um, and I know that they're going to just give it their all. I'm very excited about it. Uh, have they? Have you already heard rehearsals? No, I'm going on the seventh of October to my first rehearsal, and I've had reports back. I know I have several spies in the choir, right. um, and they will tell me it's going very well. So I'm very excited about that. They're not going to tell you that it's not going well, though. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what what uh, what is happening after that? Um, well, I am currently writing a piece for ten choirs and symphony orchestra, which has been commissioned by the Rundfunk Choir, the German radio choir in Berlin. And they've invited nine youth choirs from all over the world to come and celebrate Beethoven's 250th birthday next year. 
on the 1st of I'm May in Berlin on the Philharmonie. Everybody, everybody I ask about Beethoven's 250th anniversary goes, oh no, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm um, quite nervous about well, it. It's going to be a lot of Beethoven. Interesting you say that because I've actually never really liked Beethoven. Oh, shock horror. <laughs> and I've had to kind of go into it because I've got several projects for next year and I've had to really go into it and now I'm and I've read his bio or his but not his, his autobiography <laughs> really <laughs> <coughs> yeah and <coughs> oh excuse me I've got to go excuse me <coughs> right should you be out no, 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 should no. you be out yes I should okay it's very good for me to be out okay um so you've read his biography so I've read his biography I've read two biographies actually and um and now I can sort of understand where he was coming from. <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> How very magnanimous of you. <laughs> okay, yes. And I love bits of it, but I'm not, I'm still not a Beethoven fan, but I'm feeling very honored to do this project. And it's 45 minutes. And we have choirs from Brazil, South Africa, Lebanon, Philippines, all coming together. And I've been working with all these different choral directors from all these choirs. And it's very exciting. I finished it in um, piano score, and I've now I'm now just starting to orchestrate it. Um, but it's really exciting, and it's going to be on live on German TV. Wow! And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, how do you orchestrate? Do you do you orchestrate by hand, by computer? Um, I work on Sibelius because um, I used to I used to play the harp. It was my second study at the Royal Academy of Music. Violin, flute, piano, harp, guitar. Oh. Oh, God, <laughs> how annoying. But none of them, as anyone would want to listen okay, to. Okay, no, nobody would pay. No, for this. no, okay, no. Right. And the harp, the idea of the harp, which my second study at the academy was that I was going to support myself as an orchestral harpist um, while I composed. But unfortunately, my hands are too small for the harp, and I got terrible tendon trouble. So um, writing for long periods is not possible. So I have wonderful Sibelius software. And what I do when I compose is I sketch on manuscript paper first and then I put it on Sibelius. As in, um, Sibelius will scan it? Then. No, right. no, I have to input it with a mouse. Right. And, um, but I, um, normally I write, I would write for orchestra, a choir and orchestra piece, I'd write with orchestra first and then somebody else would do a piano reduction. But because all these choirs have to be able to perform their parts for on their own they all sing together but when they're on there they have their little moments on their own and they're supposed to be able to take that away and have it as their own piece that they can perform with piano anytime so I had to do it that way around which was um, a bit it was really hard actually I found it very limiting because I rely a lot on the orchestra to provide certain atmospheres and so it was quite it was quite hard but um, it's done now <laughs> and the easy part is left <laughs> um, I want to just ask you about Beethoven again mm, what mm. what did you initially resist about Beethoven because um, you might be able to help me you see. all right I okay I realize there are exceptions to this and I'm going to be short for this but I find well, I'm, I'm I find a lot of harmonic language boring right I much prefer Bach's harmonic language. Okay. And I can't tell you why that is. And that's okay too. That's all. Okay, right. thank we're, you. We're, we're, we're all okay to have <laughs> okay, an opinion about. Uh, yeah. So that was your resistance. What yeah. changed when you read the biography? 
Um, I just understood why his music is, and, and what a miracle it is, especially given his um, awful hearing loss and, um, and his terrible depressions. And um, I just think it's so wonderful that something so beautiful and miraculous came out of those really tough times, and I think it's a lesson for us all. Uh, do you happen to know any deaf composers today? No. Why do you? Well, no, I, I was just thinking, I wondered, you know, he was a deaf composer. I know. And a remarkable deaf composer. Um, Why wouldn't we have deaf composers now? I don't know. And I know, you know, I know, well, there's Evelyn Glennie, of course, deaf percussionist, and I know um, a few deaf singers, actually. And, um, but I don't know any deaf composers. Some research is needed. Mm, they must um, be out there. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell me that I haven't asked you, please? Um. No. <laughs> <laughs> you sound almost exhausted. Thank you. No, I think I'm. I'm all disinterested. I've, I've told you my all. I've given you all there is to give. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify, iTunes and Audio Boom. To get in touch, tweet at Thoroughly Good, post a message on the Thoroughly Good Facebook page or email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me. Thoroughly